So a couple of years ago, I reached out to some of the most prominent names in the psychedelic community in an attempt at uh, creating kind of an anthology book that served as a kind of mapping of hyperspace. I kind of wanted to investigate um, who the DMT elves, who the blue lady, who these entities were, and where exactly this space that is um, the DMT state uh, existed, um, if it existed at all, or or instead, is it simply a um, neurochemical hallucination caused by the ingestion of uh, you know DMT alkaloids and whatnot? Um, so unfortunately that, that book didn't really come to fruition. Uh, I did get some really interesting, uh, submissions from some really excellent people in the psychedelic community, but unfortunately there just wasn't enough of a volume to create an actual book. I, I ended up only getting, uh, I'm going to say three or four separate, uh, submissions, um, out of the, I'm going to say 20 or 30 people that I actually reached out to. And that's unfortunate, but, uh, in any event, my guest today is somebody who's thought about this subject probably a lot more than any of those people that I reached out to, probably even more so than myself. Uh, he is a neurobiologist and pharmacologist at Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology, and his new book, Alien Information Theory, is available this April. Please welcome Dr. Andrew Gallimore. So uh, I guess let's start by, um, if you want to just describe, you know, your job title and what you do um, in your in your professional career. Yeah, so I guess, well, it's kind of a little bit complicated. So I guess I'm on a day-to-day basis, I'm a computational neurobiologist. So I'm interested in uh, the brain primarily, and I'm interested in the way that we can use computational and mathematical models to uh, replicate and understand uh, uh, the way the brain works, basically. But uh, alongside that, I mean, I, I initially trained as a uh, chemical pharmacologist, so I'm, I'm interested not just in the brain, but specifically I'm interested in the way that molecules can interface with the brain so how you know psychoactive drugs basically and how they can uh, affect the brain at the molecular level so by interacting with certain receptors for example uh, and how this can um, engender these quite dramatic effects at these sort of global cortical level and effects on consciousness this this is a very interesting subject to me um you know a couple of years ago i uh, started gathering kind of almost like an anthology series uh, of people from within the psychedelic community to try and get their interpretation on, um, you know, what exactly the nature of the psychedelic experience is. So it's interesting to me that, I, I mean, you know, you're definitely uh, like trained in the biocentric perspective, but correct me if I'm wrong, you're idea of what these entities that you encounter actually are uh, and your ideas behind the nature of the psychedelic experience are are a little um, a little bit more esoteric would you say yeah well I mean I don't I don't adopt the kind of slightly facile and easy option and say that 
um, DMT. I mean, we're talking really about DMT specifically here, I think. Uh, and that's really what I've written about mostly. I don't adopt that kind of obvious default position that it's just hallucination. I don't think that's actually a particularly scientific approach. I think you need to approach things from an evidential perspective and actually examine the experience uh, and say, actually, can we explain this as mere hallucination? Can we explain these entities and this strange hyperdimensional habitat that they inhabit uh, simply as hallucination? Um, and when I when you attempt to do that, I think you actually do run into uh, problems within the kind of orthodox default neuroscientific paradigm. So, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't, to, to many kind of mainstream neuroscientists, I will sound totally out there. Um, but uh, I, I don't do it, you know, I don't go out there uh, just for, for fun. You know, I've act, I have really deeply thought about these issues um, and written about them extensively and, and tried to kind of justify my position that actually there might be a lot more to the effects of DMT than just um, mere hallucination. Um, you know, and, and pe people talk about hallucinations as if they know what they are. I mean, people often, um, the problem with kind of discussing it with most people is that they get the fundamentals wrong. You know, they don't really understand how uh, the normal waking world is constructed um, and how that relates to what's going on in the brain, you know, let alone um, what's happening when DMT enters the brain. So it's kind of often you know, you ha if, you, if you're really going to debate this and argue this, whether DMT is really allowing you to access ultimate realities or whether it's simply, you know, a hallucination, you really have to have a solid kind of neuroscientific underpinning. And that's what I try to bring to the debate. So what role do you think, uh, you know, the actual DMT molecule plays in this if, if it is indeed um, some type of portal to another dimension? Or instead of a portal to another dimension, do you think that, at, you were mentioning, um, you know, default neural mode and, and how we operate on a day-to-day -day basis. Do you think that these entities, you know, if you're willing to call them that, do you think they exist all around us all the time? Or do you think that your brain goes to a, a different uh, echelon, let's say, um, upon ingesting these substances? Well, I mean, okay, so... <laughs> There's a lot to unpack. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, so first of all, let's establish. So, what does DM? What, what, what? How is the world constructed normally? That's really what. What is the relationship between what's going on in the brain under normal circumstances, right? So that's we should start there initially, right? When you're going about your day-to-day -day business uh, in the world that you that you you know assume is real, um, you know, how is that world constructed? Well, we we know that this world has a has two basic characteristics. It, it's rich in information, uh, and this information is unified. These are the basic fundamental kind of uh, axioms, if you like, of the structure of your world. Both of these features of the world are generated by the brain. So the brain is an information generator, and it generates the informational structure of your world. Anything you experience in the world out there, or that appears out there, is, is, is constructed as information in your brain. Uh, if you don't believe me, uh, as I always say, you know, have a neurosurgeon remove uh, a small part of your visual cortex called V4, which uh, is responsible for representing color information in the world, and you will you will experience a world. You will wake up in a world devoid of color, in a monochrome world. Um, so, 
So that's the first feature. Uh, the world is always constructed from information generated by your brain, and uh, this world is always unified. So what this means is, for example, uh, if you were to look at a bowl of fruit, um, you've got a yellow banana, you've got maybe a red apple. Now, there's no way for you to become confused by the attachment of the yellow to the banana and the attachment of the red to the apple, even though the color information is, is, is generated a, a completely separate area of the cortex to the, the, the form and the sort of the overall kind of um, concept of the object sort of information. It's, uh, they're, they're separated always in the cortex, but they're unified. Um, and, and this is actually called the binding problem. How are these features bound together? Um, but, but again, the solution lies in the way that your brain represents this information. So, so the world, first of all, the world is always built from information generated by your brain, always. So then that, that naturally raises the question as well, how does that then relate to what's going on outside the brain? And the answer to that is that information enters the brain via the senses. Um, so this could be information from, from the eyes or from the ears or, or whatever. Uh, and this information modulates and is kind of matched to the ongoing information that's going on in your brain. So information from the outside world, your brain isn't taking snapshots of the outside world. Uh, it's receiving patterns of noisy data, which it then uh, uses to kind of um, reconstruct a kind of model of reality, if you like, but always built from information. And that applies under all circumstances. Um, except, of course, when you're, when you're dreaming, for example, when all of that information is, is cut off, uh, but your brain actually builds the world in exactly the same way when you're dreaming as it does when you're waking. The only difference is that the the sensory information, this kind of ex, what we call extrinsic information um, from the outside world is cut off. And so um, the, the world can become rather fluid and, and, and unpredictable and often quite chaotic. But it de does tend to be a kind of a gross representation or, a, you know, it's the same model of the world. The brain is building the world in the same way you're dreaming. So really, when you come to something like DMT, the question you should ask not is the DMT a hallucination or is the DMT world all you know, just in your head uh, or is it you know, a real world? No, 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 no. What you need to ask is um, you, you know, the DMT world is always constructed from information generated by your brain. The question is, is, is that information modulated by some kind of external data source? which would be kind of some kind of higher dimensional space to which somehow DMT gets access. So that's it's a kind of different question. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so th this is kind of the subject matter of your book to some degree, correct? Do you uh, want to just, uh, you know, uh, cover what your just a brief synopsis of what your book is about? Yeah, so the book is called Alien Information Theory, and it really is a, a combination of um, several years of, of thinking about basically what psychedelic drugs generally do to the brain um, and, and what DMT specifically um, does to the brain and the way that if we actually take the idea seriously that DMT might um, give the brain access to let's call them data sources um, that, that are normally inaccessible, how could that possibly work? Um, that's the, the real issue. There's no for example, there's, no, there's nothing within kind of physical law that would rule out the existence of some sort of parallel or orthogonal reality. Um, what's the problem is that somehow that, you know, consuming this simple molecule can somehow gate access 
to, to, to this reality. That's the real issue here. Um, you know, you know it, it, entirely mainstream physicists will, will, uh, will entertain the idea that we live in some sort of multiverse or that, that reality is far more complex uh, than this, this, this ostensibly kind of three-dimensional plus one of time space that we live in. That's not particularly groundbreaking. What would be uh, more difficult to contend with from a purely neuroscientific perspective is the idea that's, that, that, that simply changing the way the brain functions using a, a very, very simple molecule can somehow gate access to this alternate reality. So, but I do take that seriously and, and uh, um, I'm kind of one of the few people that does it from a, um, with, a, with a very, very kind of clear neuroscientific underpinning, I think, and actually kind of ask the question, okay, let's, let's imagine that DMT does gate access to this alternate uh, orthogonal reality. How could that possibly work? Uh, un based upon what we understand uh, about how the brain works and about how reality is or could be constructed. So that's basically, yeah, the book. Yeah, that's, it's amazing, man. I, yeah. part of the reason that I wanted to get you on here is because you do come from, a, <clears throat> excuse me, because you do come from a scientific perspective and yet um, you are willing to entertain these ideas. So in, in your idea, who are these DMT entities? Like, what do you think that actually is? Um, okay, I don't know who they are, um, but what you can sort of glean, I mean, there's certain times you have to kind of defer to um, phenomenological experience, right? You know, sometimes the actually um, confronting these entities and, and, and looking at their characteristics, that's the, the, one of the best ways, if you like, to understand them. Uh, and, the, and they do seem they you know it's clearly the DMT space whatever it is is a you know extremely complex ecology uh, hyperdimensional ecology with creatures that vary as much in their uh, intent as their 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 intelligence or their form or all of these things. Um, so it's a rich ecology, um, whatever it is. So I don't think we can say that these entities are this or they are that. Um, but clearly there, there, there tends to be this presence of extreme, um, what might be called superintelligence or hyperintelligence, um, which suggests that they are, and, and, and indeed the structure of the DMT space, which is always um, you know, inordinately complex, um, containing what appear to be additional dimensions beyond the, the, the geometric constraints of our reality, um, suggests that this this place is uh, in in a, in a way kind of subsumes our reality in the same way that a three dimensional world would subsume a, a flatland world. So it appears that our reality is kind of the way I see it a kind of slice of this higher dimensional structure, uh, and these beings emerged within this higher dimensional structure. I don't know how uh, any more than I know how humans emerged within this lower dimensional structure. Um, but it, it appears that within this higher dimensional structure, um, which might be much, much older, um, time might not have the same meaning in that uh, place. Um, the, you know, the laws of physics uh, might be very different. Um, and, and the relationship between that that space and our lower dimensional space isn't clear. Now, 
that could mean, not doesn't necessarily mean, it could mean, uh, for example, that our slice is a, is a kind of a constructed slice. I've entertained the idea that uh, our reality is a kind of uh, like a um, like a digital construct, like a digital um, a digital slice of a higher dimensional structure within which, um, using a kind of um, the idea of having uh, very very large numbers of these slices, all with slightly different uh, rules, what we would we would know as the laws of physics, uh, and within them certain species can. Uh, Within a very very small number, uh, um, intelligent species like ours will eventually emerge, and that DMT is somehow a technology that's embedded in our reality that allows us to interface with this kind of high dimensional space. So it's like, for for example, uh, if you were to design some kind of artificial life program uh, on a computer, um, well, I use the cellular automaton as as a model example, and you allow it to run. And then, you know, to your astonishment, you see that these, these beings uh, seem to emerge and they appear to be intelligent. Um, you know, they have, they have all the characteristics of, of living, intelligent, conscious, perhaps, organisms. Uh, and then you say, well, okay, let's try and communicate with these, these little beings, whatever they are. How would we do it? Um, and that's not a trivial question, actually. You know, how would you communicate with a being? You can't kind of plug a microphone into the computer. Because any information that you input into them would be completely meaningless to them. Um, so it's actually kind of interesting. How would you communicate with a with a lower dimensional being in a computer program that you had designed? Um, that's a really interesting question. Uh, and and so we can perhaps envisage that actually DMT is that technology that has been kind of embedded in our reality um, um, that then allows us to communicate with these this this kind of higher dimensional. Uh, super intelligence, hyper intelligence uh, that actually kind of engendered our very existence. Yeah, that's that's uh, it's an interesting thought. I mean, I've definitely considered simulation theory even um, outside of the DMT realm. Um, just the you know sheer probability of uh, you know all of the all of the known universe, all of the universe beyond that known universe. And the probability that somebody out there has designed a uh, computer program capable of simulating a reality. Um, it's not outside of the realm of possibility to me to say that um, some, uh, uh, let's say, at, uh, metaphysical um, beings have developed our reality. I, I wouldn't be uh, shocked to know that at all. Especially, and this is another subject I wanted to talk to you about, especially in regards to shared hallucinations. So yeah. a lot of the people who have encountered, uh, you know, DMT entities see a lot of the same types of things. Now, some people attribute that to um, the Jungian archetypes, uh, just kind of some basic um, innate human perceptions of the world. Um, but it could actually instead be that it's uh, we're just encountering the same the same beings on the other side. Would would you agree? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 a little bit com complex because you have to kind of separate the the being in itself, if you like, from um, the way that kind of the being appears to the individual, if that makes sense. So so as I said before. Um, you know, you're, you, have, you have a phenomenal world and it's full of things and objects. And we kind of agree, certainly being things in this world, um, you know, if I was to hold a, 
an apple in front of us. You know, we, we kind of agree on, on its form and its structure and its identity and that kind of thing. Um, and, and, and there are very good reasons why we share those, uh, why there is a consensus about these things and the way that our brains are constructed and the way that these patterns of information from the world you know, enter the brain, all that kind of thing, the way that our brain has evolved. How our brain would deal with information from a, a kind of an orthogonal reality is, is a little bit different and, and it's not within, it's not out of the realm of possibility that when you encounter beings that you kind of, your brain kind of reconstructs them using kind of the closest familiar archetype um, in, in that you, you, you know, it, it's kind of like if you're, um, you're, you know, you, you're in a dark forest or something, and you might see patterns of light, and you interpret it as, you know, as some kind of figure, um, because you're you're trying to make sense of it, and and you or you or you or you um you see a the image of Christ in a piece of toast, right? In in that you're you're trying to make sense of something, you know, it's it's you're, you've met some kind of intelligent being it's, within. It's like our uh, our pattern recognition software in our brain. Yeah. Is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But so I'm not saying that, that that these beings are not there and they're not intelligent and they're not conscious, but but how your brain constructs them um, as a being of that kind of of such an alien nature. Uh, it's perhaps not entirely surprising that it would use these what appear to be deeply embedded archetypal typal structures in order to kind of make sense of them. So it can be both, I think, is the answer, I think, to that question. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I was a little kid, um, I was raised Catholic. Uh, it's very common here in the United States. And uh, I, I was once in Sunday school, and um, my teacher said something to the effect of trying to trying to show God, you know, show a God to a human being is comparable to trying to explain the inner workings of a television to an ant. Yeah, and I thought that was a, a definitely an apt uh, comparison. Yeah. Um, do you have any experience with flotation tanks? You were talking about you know perceptions of light and and kind of all of that. Um, it's interesting when you do kind of starve your brain of uh, you know these phenomena. What it is that it ends up um, doing instead? Are, are you familiar with this at all? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, this is this is sim the similar idea. I mean. We, you know, the brain is a is kind of the one of the brain's most remarkable achievements is, it, is its 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 desire and its drive uh, and its its agility really in in constructing in constructing worlds uh, and it seems to you know really want to do this uh, under all circumstances um, so you know this is why you know when, when you or part of the reason why the brain is so good at building the world you know even in in the dream state is because it, it it loses access to um information from from the external world this ex, extrinsic sensory data and so you know in a flotation tank uh it's the same kind of deal except the difference is that you're not asleep so it's a slightly different set of uh, of, of conditions but it's the same idea right you know if your brain isn't is your the information that your brain is generating is isn't being kind of modulated uh, by these by the, these regular kind of patterns of information from the environment? What does it do then? You know, it, it it's it's like the brain is driven to build. Uh, you know, it really wants to build a reality for you, uh, and it will do it whether or not it's got access to information.
Yeah, I've definitely experienced like in the flotation tank, you'll you'll see like hypnagogia where your eyes just start um, a lot like right before you go to sleep. Sometimes yeah. if you like closed eye visualizations and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so an- another thing I wanted to uh, talk to you about, uh, and I think this is actually the reason I found out about you. Y- you saw the Alex Jones interview on Joe Rogan, correct? Yeah, of course. <laughs> OK, so um, you. From from my understanding, I, I read some article you posted or something like that. Yeah. Your research uh, has has delved into intravenous DMT at some point. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, so I, w- I wrote a paper with uh, Rick Strassman, uh, who needs no introduction, of course, um, uh, in two thousand and sixteen. So basically, my so I'm interested in how we might use DMT or develop DMT as this technology. Uh, you know, people often refer to DMT as a technology, like an alien technology or something like that. But they, they're they often kind of um, hesitant to actually start treating it like one, uh, in that, um, you know, most people think that the, you know, the be all or all and end all when it comes to uh, using DMT is, is, is to, you know, vaporize it in a little glass pipe or something like that, which is perfectly fine. Uh, but, you know, it occurred to me if we really are going to take the idea that DMT might gate access to these orthogonal hidden realms, um, we, you know, within which there are species, you know, extremely intelligent species with with whom we, we might want to establish kind of stable communication, then we need to have a better mode of um, uh, means of communicating with them and, and establishing stable contact, stable entry into their space. And using a little glass pipe or even a, um, you know, a bolus injection um, by IV is, is not really good enough. And we need a way to kind of maintain stable brain concentration of DMT and sort of induce somebody into that state and keep them there for as long as we want uh, and then bring them out. Um, And so this idea came to me in sort of 2015 um, that this might be possible using um, target controlled intravenous infusion, which is basically the technology used by anesthesiologists to control the level of um, anesthetic drug in, in the brain of someone who is asleep. Um, so most anesthetic drugs, believe it or not, you don't just sort of inject somebody and then put them to sleep and then, you know, they hopefully don't wake up for a few hours or depending on how long the operation is. But the idea is you, you, you give them a, a constant infusion of the drug, which is normally a very short acting drug, um, um, using a very, very carefully controlled um, infusion protocol that's informed by a, a mathematical model of the drug's metabolism and um, uh, distribution through the body uh, um, and then you you are able to kind of control the within a certain error range you can control the level of the anesthetic in the in the person's brain and keep them uh, in in that state um, that, that asleep or you can push them slightly deeper or you can bring them you know closer to waking or you can bring them completely out and wake them up um, and so my my idea was that because dmt is so short acting and because as rick strassman showed back in the 90s there is no subjective tolerance with repeated use so there's no issue with dmt's effects becoming um you know reducing um over time um my idea was that if if given the kind of 
um, the pharmacological, sorry, the, the blood sampling data that, that Rick Stasman um, uh, acquired during his, you know, his early 90s study with, with his 60 patients, 60 subjects, um, that I could develop this pharmacokinetic model and actually use this target-controlled intravenous infusion technology with DMT. Um, so, so basically, I, I got in contact with Rick Strasman and asked, asked for his data, and he was very, very happy to give it to me. Uh, and then, you know, I developed this model, um, and then we, we wrote this paper together and published it, and then it kind of took off, and, um, you know, people were writing about these, you know, the matrix machine and, and you know, scientists using DMT to speak to aliens and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but actually, you know, I've never actually been directly involved in a continuous, you know, intravenous infusion study with DMT. In fact, there hasn't been one. Um, well, there was kind of a, a less well-informed study back in 2005 with ketamine and DMT, uh, but it wasn't informed by this, this kind of target-controlled uh, technology, uh, which I developed um, with Rick Strassman. So, um, so yes, yeah, so that's, that's my place in the kind of act, aside from the kind of theoretical and uh, speculative ideas that, that, I, that I'm focused on a lot of most of the time, uh, this is kind of the real kind of practical contribution to this that I've, that I've made, yeah. It, it's, this is something that's really fascinating to me because as you were describing earlier, the, the DMT space, your sense of time is is radically different than it is here in in base reality and i would say that's that you know that's kind of true of psychedelics in general um you know mushrooms your perception of time is is almost as though time doesn't matter or something yeah, yeah. um but so this research intra into intravenous dmt and uh kind of forgive my terminology but like a slow drip slow release method of yeah. dmt to extend the dmt session over uh, over a long period of time um, you, you've encountered, or you believe you would encounter, um, hurdles where the body would start to prevent you from doing so. If I, if I remember correctly from what I read, um, what kind of hurdles? Well, I mean, <laughs> there shouldn't be, <laughs> um, if you can, if you can get the, I mean, there's the, the, the model is technically, um, in principle, it's, it's, it's relatively straightforward. I mean, technically, the, the actual practicalities are, are more complex, as always. Um, I mean, normally, these intra, uh, infusion models that are used with uh, general anesthetics, they're normally developed and refined over, over years and years and years. You know, and you will often find many papers describing improvements to the model and, you know, and, and improvements, what we call covariates. So... Uh, the way that the infusion model needs to be changed based upon you know a person's age or their weight or uh, their, their their sex or you know things like that. Um, so it's it, the model is that I developed is really a proof of principle. Um, but to actually do it in humans uh, and have it work reliably uh, and actually get to the stage where somebody can you know plug themselves into one of these machines and then just kind of input some kind of journey time uh, and then have the machine take them into the DMT space and then bring them out again. That's trickier uh, to do that. You know, the danger is that, um, well, not so much a danger, but the problem is that um, if, if the infusion rate isn't quite right, then the DMT levels can either 
fall, uh, and then you basically come out of the DMT space early, uh, or they you can they can rise, they can accumulate uh, much 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 higher, and then you get to the kind of blackout phase uh, where, where the experience basically becomes um, you can't remember it basically, which is completely useless for these purposes. Right. So, you know, you you live in Japan. I'm I'm wondering yeah. what is the uh, Obviously, the legal status, I'm sure that DMT is probably illegal, but in terms of university research, what, what do they think about this? Do you, have you, I'm sure you've had to encounter you know, whatever your governing bodies are in relationship to this research, right? Well, I mean, um, you know, my day-to-day -day research is uh, on a much more kind of fundamental level. I mean, I would normally work um, at the sort of subcellular level. I'm looking at, you know, receptors and networks of molecules inside neurons. So, so I'm not on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, uh, my my kind of paid work isn't directly linked to psychedelics. It's it's that's more of something that I do on the side. But actually, um, my my institute is actually. I've not encountered any problems. I mean, I've, I've published papers whilst I've been here in Japan on, on this, this this subject, um, which have been, you know, fully supported by my institute. So I don't, I, you know, Japan is a, I mean, we could talk about Japan all night. I mean, it's a strange kind of country in that um, it's, um, it, it, its attitude to drugs are somewhat contradictory. As you find all across the world. Um, people seem to ha have this inability to think rationally about uh, about drugs. Um, most Japanese people, for example, you meet on the street would, would, would say that, that there are no drugs in Japan or Japanese people don't use drugs, which of course is nonsense. You know, if you go out on a Friday night in Shibuya in Tokyo, I can show you half the fucking cities uh, off their face on alcohol. Uh, and so, you know, half the population smoke. So it, there are a lot of drugs. Um, you know, marijuana, sorry, marijuana, cannabis uh, is uh, is heavily demonized in, in Japan, um, bizarrely, you know, um, as is meth. But psychedelics, they don't really get spoken about a lot. So, um, you know, I, there's, there's not this um, kind of demonization of psychedelics like there is of, of, of meth. I mean, Japan historically has a huge problem with meth, um, and cannabis is kind of seen as a drug that is counter to the hard work ethic. Uh, it's associated with you know laziness and lassitude, um, whereas psychedelics, you know, they kind of ignored, I think, largely uh, by 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 the Japanese, unless you happen to associate with certain you know uh, subcultures, basically. So with with this, um, you know, long form intravenous DMT, what do you think that we would be able to achieve by this? <clears throat> For instance, I know I've heard Terence McKenna talking about um, bringing back some type of transcendental object with him or, or attempting to do so. I know Alex Jones obviously talked about, um, you know, negotiating with, with these <laughs> uh, entities. Do you think we would be able to do some type of uh, mapping of... Uh, hyperspace, so to speak, or or do you think that we would be able to bring back some information that is relevant here in base reality uh, that we would otherwise not have access to if if not for the DMT realm? Yeah, I mean, well, if if not, then what's the point, right? I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, I I do think so. I think I think that the DMT space clearly 
uh, has a lot of uh, of information. Um, um, and you know, like all structures, it's constructed fundamentally, in my opinion, from from information, high, extremely complex, high dimensional information. Um, so yeah, I do think that that you know we need we should treat DMT as this 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 technology. And for me, I you know I don't know what we would find out. I don't know the answers. I don't know what a kind of a research project over time in which people were um, sent into the DMT space for you know, a day or, or longer at a time and how, what kind of information they would bring back. But that's, the, you know, the purpose of the work, right, is to kind of establish that. Um, you know, it's like you can't explore, you can't explore the, you know, the dark side of the moon without some kind of um, mode of means of getting there, right? You can't say what you're going to find. All you know, you know, you need to develop some kind of technology to get yourself there in the first place, and it's the same really with 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 DMT, in my opinion. You should treat it as a technology, as a as a means of gating access to this place, and you should bring your best technological apparatus to the table, and that's the best you can do. And then, uh, what will come of that, I don't know. What I do know is that we've got a much better chance of retrieving something of value. Uh, whether that be information, whether that be some other form of technology, or whether that be some kind of more fundamental transformation in the nature of, of, of human uh, human existence, you know, is DMT the means of escaping uh, whatever I've called, you know, the game, this kind of cosmic game, uh, the idea that, in fact, uh, you know, I mean, Terence McKenna used to talk a lot about us. Um, you know, the idea that Earth is the cradle of, of mankind, but one does not remain in the cradle forever. Um, and, you know, he often spoke about setting off for the stars. But I think you can you can think about that, not necessarily literally, but the idea of actually, uh, in a sense, uploading ourselves or tr in, a, in, a, in some way being able to trans transfer ourselves. Uh, or transcribe our the, the informational structure of our of our brain or of our consciousness into this high dimensional space, and that's something that that really interests me. You know, beyond the idea of simply bringing back information that we could use in this lower dimensional world, the idea that DMT actually might be more than just a gate through which you can receive information, but actually a gate through which you can actually pass, perhaps permanently. Uh, and this is something I deal with in the book. Um, what, you know, just returning slightly, going back a little bit to the book. Um, so the kind of the fundamental basis of, of the book actually comes from a quote from Terence McKenna, which is um, uh, the main thing to understand is that we are imprisoned in some kind of work of art. Um, and so that really fascinated me when when he said that you know what does he mean by a work of art and what does he how can we possibly be kind of imprisoned with it within it um so i think you know if we we see our reality as this lower dimensional slice this lower dimensional digital slice of this higher dimensional structure uh and dmt seems to gate access to this high dimensional realm is it possible that dmt is 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 actually the technology for kind of permanently escaping this imprisonment uh, within this lower dimensional space, within this work of art, as Terence McKenna put it. Yeah, so that could be the, the end game here, you know, more than just receiving useful information, but actually becoming, you know, hyperdimensional citizens of, you know, of hyperspace, you know, it's like, wow, you know, that's... <laughs>
something way beyond uh, what you're thinking about here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's it. It's it's crazy because it's almost beyond comprehension. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I mean, the DMT space in general is kind of beyond comprehension. Right. One last thing I wanted to get to with you. So, I mean, you had mentioned a moment ago uh, extending the DMT experience to upwards of a day uh, as a potentiality. Um, I know that, you know, in coming out of the DMT experience, it is often kind of a very fleeting thing. You have this vague recollection of what's happened, Mm. but it's almost like a dream, you know, you, you forget it over a short period of time. Do you yeah. think there's any way of overcoming this or do you think this will kind of be problematic uh, in terms of um, mapping uh, hyperspace as it were? Um, it's, it's a good question. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a major problem. Uh, but what you do notice is that, well, some, firstly, some people do claim that there are little tricks or that there are even I mean I was speaking to a guy uh, only like two or three weeks ago who was telling me that if you if you drink this this herb this tea whenever he drinks this tea half an hour before he uh, he takes DMT he can remember every detail I've not tried this but um, do you know what the uh, what the herb was yeah I'm gonna find out now and tell you I'm gonna tell um Mm-mm. Yes, I wrote it down. I wrote it down. Okay, one second. Yes, so 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 that's one thing. This tea, uh, which I'm going to tell you in a second, uh, it's called Ilex Guayusa. So I L E X uh, G U A Y U S A. Ilex. Uh, drink tea forty-five minutes to one hour before is what I've written here. And that, then he said, I've not tried it, but he says that if he drinks that tea, and I have no idea what the mechanism is, this, you know, this tea is, um, you know, I have no idea why that would have this effect, but he claims it's, um, it means when he takes this tea, it enables him to, um, to experience everything. So that's worth looking into. There might be, you know, not just this particular tea, but there might be uh, other pharmacological, um, as they say, you know, this is, should be treated as a technology. So I'm not against the idea that there could be any other pharmacological interventions that might be helpful. Uh, but also just with practice, people find that, um, you know, if they get their, their mental, psychological preparations right, um, that they can remember these things, remember details better. So, um, you know, it's perhaps not overly surprising that when you're thrust into this, this domain, um, uh, of kind of impos- impossible dimensionality and, and construction that you you find it difficult to kind of render uh, render it in any kind of meaningful lower dimensional form when you get out of it to sort of English it so to speak uh, sure um, but that that's something that can be worked upon I think developed this is I, I I'm just I can't imagine why we're not putting all of our efforts into this as as a planet uh like i feel like you know maybe it's just the american in me or whatever but i feel like we should have an entire an entire like almost like air force or or army of people um wrong are, word i wouldn't say <laughs> no well <laughs> you know not in not in a uh, warlike way but i'm saying like yeah, I know a, like a large group of people who are highly trained and highly specialized both in administering these substances and also in um in going into these realms and navigating these realms, people who are training in meditation, uh, 
and and constantly entering these spaces so that they're able to uh, you know again better remember uh, what what they encounter in these spaces and that they're able to communicate that back to us here in the base reality maybe a better analogy um, are you familiar with Lewis and Clark yes okay I think maybe that's a better analogy than the army then yeah. we we'll should stop. have these explorers uh, going to these realms <laughs> yeah yeah I think I, I agree I mean it, it seems it seems, I mean, the, the human spirit is always about being, you know, pioneers and exploring, right? You know, and whether it's exploring the farthest reaches of, uh, of, of planet Earth or trying to kind of explore space beyond our Earth. You know, it seems that there's, there seems this natural human drive to kind of explore these um, sort of um, distant and hidden and mysterious kind of realms, but with 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 DMT, I think I think part of part of the problem uh, is that it's very very simple for somebody that's never taken DMT uh, to simply dismiss it and say oh, they're just hallucinating. You know that's such it's such a simple and facile way of, of dismissing it. Um, you know people have no idea about the you know the idea that there could be. You know, that you could explore inner spaces and that they could have as much meaning or significance uh, or autonomy or reality uh, as as the spaces that you access using rocket ships um, that, that can be objectively and you know verifiable you know we can all watch a rocket fly out into, into, into distant space we can all look at the images that are sent back from the Mars rover um, but we can't all look inside someone's mind and, and see where they're going so it's it's that's the, the difficulty in that in, in being able to have this um, objectively you know verifiable uh, corroboration of the experience I guess but that's that that can change that can change but it's not an insurmountable problem but it, you can see why perhaps um, you, you don't have armies of people well not that we know about anyway maybe Alex Jones was right yeah. Do you, do you think that the uh, the CIA might be doing, you know, this research that you're describing or, or something comparable to it? Look, you know, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's no secret that now anymore anyway, it was no secret that, that, that the, the intelligence agencies were using uh, psychedelic drugs. Right. You know, for not so nice purposes, um, for mind control and, and, and that kind of thing but um so it would surprise me that they hadn't at least looked at dmt um whether or not any of their ilk had, had thought actually this this could be you know there could be more to this than simply as a tool for mind control but actually there does seem to be beings you know beyond this reality you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all uh, uh it wouldn't surprise me that they were using this kind of intravenous infusion technology you know that actually I'm kind of reinventing the wheel in, in a sense and that you know these people have been doing it for decades because the technology has been there for, for a long time in anesthesiology so um, you know and it, yeah uh, I don't you know I'm not I'm certainly not going to be a you know kind of a conspiracy theorist and say that yeah the, you know the clockwork elves are making intergalactic deals with <laughs> <laughs> you know the dark arms of the intelligence agencies like Jones but um, you know you can kind of you can't say that what he's saying is necessarily complete insanity because actually it, it's within the realms of possibility. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I know once I heard Terence McKenna describe uh, somebody that he said was 
like the real Terrence McKenna. He's like, oh, you think, you know, you think it's me, but there, there's somebody even more intense than me. Yeah. And his friend who he was describing, I think was, it's been a long time since I've heard the story, but I think he was in the U.S. military and he said he had like a, like a barrel, like a, you know, multi-kilogram barrel of DMT um, that he had, I guess, stolen from the military. And I mean, obviously take this story with a grain of salt. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Terrence McKenna was certainly a, uh, an orator, to say the least. Yeah. Um, a rock on tour, if you will. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's, definitely, it's definitely within the realm of possibility. But I, like you, would not um, go full conspiracy theorist like, like Alex Jones did there on, um, on Rogan. No. All right. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to say about the book or anything else you wanted to plug before we, uh, end, end the session? So, so the book, yeah. So the book is out on April 16th, but it is available. You can go to my website, www.buildingalienworlds.com, um, where you can order a copy, um, and I will sign it for you, or you can go to, uh, Amazon, and you can pre-order it now uh, and get it delivered to you kind of on the day that it's released. Um, hardcover, full color, um, beautiful piece of art. So yeah, please buy it. All right, everybody buy that book. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much. And uh, everybody see you later. Take care. <laughs> Thank you.